Welcome to Demystify Innovation. I'm Jonathan Foster. And I'm Hannah Surfelt. There are all kinds of different visions of the future. Here's one. How about a world where entrepreneurs are matched with shareholders? A world where traditional financial gatekeepers are gone and everyone has new access to capital. This is the world of crowdfunding, where people support fledgling companies with their hard-earned money. Now, is this a new idea that gives people the chance to take control of their future? Or is it a retelling of an older story where the hero is the marketplace and society always plays a supporting role? On this episode of Demystify Innovation, we speak to Daniel Dabotsi of Funded by Me, Sweden's first crowdfunding platform, about their journey to discover the wisdom of the crowd. The question is, how wise is the crowd? (laughs) Daniel speaks openly about challenging established attitudes towards investing and how crowdfunding might influence people's perspectives. And he talks about the personal attributes needed to be successful in business, including the importance of communication and relationships. Stop chasing customers and instead establish a fan base. In a world where entrepreneurs are the new rock stars, we wonder what makes something worth supporting? Who deserves to be funded and who doesn't? How do you encourage funding for the less shiny and cute ideas? So, relax and enjoy Daniel Dabotsi wrestling with some of these issues here on Demystify Innovation. Thank you so much for coming down to talk to us today, Daniel. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Crowdfunding as we know it today didn't really exist at all a few years ago. Um, who'd have thought you could raise money, so much money, from so many small backers on the internet? You guys are Scandinavia's first crowdfunding site. Uh, you, you're self-described as a dating site for investors. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into crowdfunding or, or why crowdfunding at all. So, yeah, very good question. So, f- first of all, crowdfunding is not new. A lot of people think it's new. The word is new, but the crowdfunding, we, we've been doing this for hundreds of years, you know. If you look at examples in Sweden, you have the Nordic Museum, you have uh, Folksam, Coop, Shinevik, crowdfunded initiatives, but in a very analog way and, and, and a very ineffective way. Um, 2006, there was a band called Marillion in the US, which basically crowdfunded their upcoming tour by pre, pre-selling tickets. And in 2010-ish, two sites in the US launched called Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And they were basically just for fans in New York to bring bands um, and, and asking people to pay for their favorite bands. We funded Funded by Me because we actually asked Kickstarter to fund one of our ideas, and we were not allowed to use Kickstarter because we were non-Americans. So we got a bit frustrated about that and that said, wait, if they turn us down, they most likely turn other people down also. So this, we should build this. So we, we, we launched a uh, very simple uh, fundraiser in Sweden, 2010, and said, look, guys and girls, we're building a crowdfunding site please crowdfund us, which is ex- strange. You you ask for money because you're building a site where you're going to ask for money. Mm-hmm. And nobody got this. Uh, people thought we were very quirky because we said, if you give us 100 crowns, which is like 10 euros, $10, we said, we're going to give you a hug. If you give us 200 crowns, we're going to give you a hug and a T-shirt. And what was the reaction then? Well, people thought we were strange, but they liked it. And 64 people actually donated money towards this and we raised 100,000 crowns. But the 
that's not the, 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 the important thing. The important thing is that while fundraising, we were actually marketing the launch of the platform. So once we launched, we actually had clients already. We had like nine different pitches uh, aiming to raise money. So a lot of people think crowdfunding is about cash in the account, but it's not. It's about mobilizing users and mobilizing clients and mobilizing hordes of fans. And um, I do strongly believe that these days that we live in right now, uh, you are making a cardinal mistake if you are chasing customers. You should rather chase fans or people who could potentially be your fans. Um, and that's, I think, in a way what crowdfunding is. It, you raise money as the pretext to actually mobilize people and then get the leverage out of the people who invest in you. I really like the idea of uh, of pushing a more cooperative uh, image of human nature instead of the constant you know, uh, uh, competitive image yeah. that, we, that we always have. Maybe one thing that drives investors is a desire to be hugged by you. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. You got your first lot that way. But uh, if crowdfunding, is it about gambling on the next big thing or is it about supporting interesting change? I mean, other than wanting a hug, what drives investors to get involved? Yeah, yeah. So I think it is, there's always a need for a return on investment on any investment. You want your money back and, 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 and most likely in a, in, a, in a double, 10 times or whatever fold. But if you invest on the stock market, you don't get anything else rather than the risk and the reward. So making money is the only motivator. Investing in unlisted companies, either startups, growth on crowdfunding sites or not, you always want the potential to be part of the next big thing, but also you get value from investment. And value from investment is very, very unique. It could be something simple like bragging rights. I was there. I was one of those first people. Or you get you know discounts, access, knowledge, information, which is extremely valuable. Like for instance, if you invest into a Bitcoin company, like let's say Safello, which crowdfunding through us, you understand a lot about how to trade bitcoins on the market. You, are, you, you, you learn about the entire market just by making a small investment. So the value from investment in that case is huge. And also, obviously, the return on investment is also there as a, as a kicker. Um, and we see a lot of people who use investing in unlisted companies, obviously chasing the next big thing. Uh, but also they think and they know that they can influence the success of their investment. Like if you invest in the stock market, you can't influence your company. You can't do anything. You you pray that it's going to go well and you sit still. While if you invest into an unlisted company or a crowdfunded company, you can actually call the CEO. You can open doors. You can make introductions. You can, um, you know, you can you can help the company take steps onwards. So crowdfunding is a kind of disruption to the investment model. It it, it, bring, it democratizes it in yeah, a certain sense. Is. It brings. Yeah funding towards you know minority groups are more easily able to be funded uh, uh, there's definitely a difference in gender funding yeah. isn't it so that 97% of private investment goes to males yes 99.3 actually <laughs> well, it's even worse than yeah. that yeah. uh, but but crowdfunding increases uh, yeah. investment towards females no you're totally correct like on, on our platform we have far higher success on female funding uh, so our females tend to succeed better than the guys uh, why do you think that is what's the well the market understands females. They uh, like them. They are usually better prepared. They come farther when they need the, uh, f funding. They are also more likable, and also they have lower valuations than guys. Guys tend to raise money on ideas, while females tend to raise money on execution. But something that you uh, mentioned is 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 the 
we have been pacified in a way in the last 30, 40 years. We are pacified by big monetary institutions which say, give us our money and we will decide for you. So you have millions of people in Sweden right now who are not even considering themselves as investors or shareholders. And we think we can mobilize these people. We think because we can wake up millions of people eventually who will say, of course I'm going to invest in my local uh, gas station or of course I'm going to invest in my local hamburger joint or my local app company. Um, that's something we are going towards. While up until now, the only investments made in Sweden or the, the countries that we exist is made by a few thousand male investors who previously made a exit somewhere. And, and that also leads to a discrepancy between what the next big thing will be. Because if you have a thousand 55-year-old men who invest in the next big thing, they will say what the next big thing should be because they invest in it. But if you have millions of people who pool in their money and say, wait a bit, we think this should be the next big thing, then suddenly you're going to see a totally different disruption, which means that the next big thing will not come from Silicon Valley or Stockholm. It will come from Penang or Jönköping or Milan or whatever. Mm. So, so one critical success factor for for funding like this is to have a lot of people trusting your pitch and wanting to make an investment and get involved. So, you had nine people believing in funded by me to start with. So, what would you say is a, a critical mass? How many people do yeah. do need to to yeah. bring this success? Very to, good to question. The, so, uh, we actually have companies who come to us and say, "Well, I don't need the many millions. I want a thousand people or a hundred people. I want that leverage." We had a vodka company, for instance. He clearly said when he came to us, uh, it was called Virtus Vodka. They said, "We want a hundred people." Because 100 people will be ambassadors. They will go to the local uh, market Systembolaget and ask, why don't you have my brand here? Um, if you look at the, our last success story, Paradiset, they, they, they mobilized 5,000 people to become shareholders. These are 5,000 people who invested 21 million crowns, but also 5,000 people which will you know, take an Instagram photo when they go to Paradiset. They will brag and bring in their friends. That momentum, it's something that he wanted clearly. So... Um, Uh, a lot more people nowadays, when crowdfunding for investments has matured, understand that you can leverage quite a lot. And uh, raising the funds <clears throat> is, is, is just a secondary side effect uh, to the entire process of fundraising. Uh, we actually have companies who come to us and say, look, we already raised uh, quite a lot of money. We want to top it off with crowdfunding to get the funded by me effect. Being passivized, you know, we we've been we've been we've been living under big conglomerations telling us consume and put your money in our accounts and pay t- to get your money out, which is insane. But they convince us that this is how how it should be, and and if you look at one thing that fintech revolution is doing, and only one thing, we will never all fintech institutions will never make as much money as the banks because they are really good at making money. But what we what we are doing is that we are teaching the masses to take control of their own cash. Because if you work hard for your cash, then you should be the one deciding how it should grow for you or how it should affect the society or not. I really like this idea of, of the, you know, democratizing the ability to influence the market. The, the thing that comes to mind a little bit is then uh, if the next big thing is a decision made by the crowd, 
and we talk about the wisdom of the crowd. But how wise is the crowd? Do you have any insights about, for example, the puppy dog effect? You know, uh, products or services that are cute and, and interesting and immediately understandable will get a better backing than something that takes a little bit more time and a little bit more understanding. Sure. Is that something you've yeah. noticed? No, that's a very good uh, question. So in the last, let's say, 20 years, the wisdom of the crowd is something that a lot of people have looked at. And I, I, I think that we were too early. Maybe it's still early, but... If you look at the last 10 years, everything has changed. We are uh, adapting to social media. I understand social media. It's part of our culture. It's not something new anymore. Uh, we, are, we are becoming more and more, um, um, say, I, I trust your friends because I trust you. And suddenly I can make friends with strangers online and create businesses. I think suddenly that entire shift in the mentality creates, a, 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 in a way, a wisdom of the crowds. But you're correct. Companies who are good at presenting their story will get followers more easy. I don't. I never heard about the puppy dog effect, and I think it's very wise to say, but I think the puppy dog effect can be done by every company. And I think every company should be should learn how to create the puppy dog effect regarding their users. If you look at FundMe right now, we have right now we just passed 100,000 investor members on the site, which means that whatever I'm presenting, some people will love it, some people will hate it. And there's always somebody who understands it and somebody, somebody who doesn't understand it. It's always going to be somebody who trusts this pitch and doesn't trust this pitch. And, and, and when you have enough volume, then it doesn't really matter if it's a cool app or a cool restaurant or a business-to-business or a fish farm or whatever. Because I think that you're always going to have somebody who can take a look at it. One of the phenomena I read uh, that was put out by the World Bank recently uh, from some uh, investigation into crowdfunding was that if if you identify a product as novel, it can have a, almost a 200% increase in its funding, unbelievably. If you describe it as useful, it can have a 1,200% increase in funding. I didn't know that, but I'm going to use that. But But if you describe it as useful and novel, it actually decreases the funding. Yeah, because it, actually that's what you're looking for. Yeah, okay, yeah. it has to be useful, novel. That's a good thing. Then we have the perfect match. Yeah. But I wouldn't get any investors. Look, look at this, for instance. On our platform, we try to, use, to not use the word investor. We try to use the word shareholder, which is the same thing, but you, it's different. Investor is uh, something cold, dark, focused on money, you know, Gordon Gecko type of person. So which means that the the the, av- the masses will not identify with that. Shareholder, it's simple. I, of course I want to be part of it. So we're, it's 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 understandable. So we try to have soft values, talk a lot about participation, about democratization, about um, and also when like for instance I, I'm trying to avoid the words like revolution. I'm trying to talk about paradigm shift instead, which is the same thing. But if you say revolution, then you uh, alienate uh, the, the politics and, 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 and your comp- competitors. If you talk about paradigm shift, everybody wants to be in, t- in, in a paradigm shift and, and use that. How we talk about things is extremely important. Metaphors and language influence our ideas and feelings. On the other hand, We have to tread carefully here. Sometimes language can dress up an old idea as a new one. Envisioning a society populated with many shareholders happily counting their dividends is surely not a new thing. 
Everybody says they've read Thomas Kuhn and they understand science. So yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have to accept it because they can't do anything. A revolution can be stopped, but the yes. paradigm shift, oh, you can't do anything. You just yeah. have to go along. But it's also welcomed. Paradigm shift is something beautiful. I think the best thing ever is to be the first electric company in the electric revolution, the first um, engine company in the engine revolution, the first uh, internet company in the internet revolution. You always want to be part of the, uh, you know, getting the perfect sweet spot in a paradigm shift. So talking about being the first of something, um, talk us a little bit through your own journey on, uh, yeah. with Funded By Me because you guys, you, you didn't have your whole model off the shelf. You must have had an innovation process to come to who you are today. How, how did that so, so I think the best thing for us is that we are a non-typical uh, entrepreneurs. So for instance, myself, I, I'm educated in, in uh, uh, art curating. I, I was a very successful art curator for six years here in Stockholm and I before that I sold uh, paintings. And then I quit my job in 2008 and started a web agency, which is also unorthodox to do, but it's similar. And then in 2010, me and my co-founder, which is on paper an African coder, we decided to change the world of finance. But we didn't do it because we knew that we wanted to do it. We, we had a burning desire to build something for ourselves. And I also realized that um, I have a kid. She's, she's 12 now. She's a girl in the funding hierarchy She's lower than a guy, which means that I need to change something for her or create something for her. So when she's 18 and she wants to start her own business, she would have better uh, access to the, the, the monetary deal flow. So uh, our first build was instinct. We said we have to build something because we're not allowed to be on Kickstarter. The first version was extremely rudimentary. It was not a clone. We could have done a clone cleaning, but we said, let's do an inspired clone, which is you look at what they're doing good and what they're doing badly, and we try to do something simple. It's, it's different, which you adapt to your local market. And then you read a lot of data. And our data told us that the American donation-based crowdfunding, like Kickstarter, was not going to be as successful in Europe because we, as Europeans, we tend not to be as donation-driven uh, as Americans. In America, you put your money when you, where your mouth is and, and you, if you like somebody, you give them cash. You love, you love you wait, your waiter, you give them cash. You even give cash to your doctor and teacher and, and gardener. While we in Sweden don't do that. And we also have governmental institutions who support both startups and, 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 and arts. So we realized that we have to do something else. And by chance, we were contacted by a guy who wanted to give shares away for his uh, company. And we said, why not? This should be doable. So we built something which we thought should be built. We looked at the problem from a problem perspective without being influenced by the market, without being influenced by how it's always been or how it is. We looked at it from a problem-solving solution. We solved the problem. Yes, this is how you can offer shares on the market. But then we had to check with lawyers. And lawyer said, wait a bit, <laughs> you can't, you can't really launch this. Yeah. So we had to put some bottlenecks on it. But once again, we addressed this from a user perspective and say, well, if we put this bottlenecks on it, we think that we can launch this. And we were right. And then eventually the hard part was not to build it or, or attract clients. The hard part was to convince people who are in a old mindset that this is not something different. It's just slightly better. Because different is bad. Nobody wants huge change and nobody wants to be old or being obsolete. But you want to tell them we're doing the same thing like you, but just in a different way. And we look at the different demogra dem dem demographics which we are not, you're not addressing. So when we launched equity crowdfunding, I think the best thing ever was that our background was wrong. And I think if you look at innovation, you should have people around you who are not 
tinted by your own market, who can actually look at the problem from a different perspective. Um, that's why it's really, really good to have diversity in your company, to have young people, old people, female uh, men, immigrants, non-immigrants, uh, people with different educations. I think one of the best way to innovate, if you really want to innovate, is to surround yourself with different people. But it's hard because it's, 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 it's not an easy process. If, if you look for smooth innovation, then don't hire different people because it's not easy to have different people around you. It's vital to build a society where being a young girl is not a handicap to business or to accessing capital. The more diverse a group, the more it can approach ideas from lots of different directions and create a culture where it's easier to avoid the groupthink trap. So the the best way to think out of, outside of the box is to come from outside of the box in the first place. Yes, to be outside of us, yeah. Uh, I like the idea that, that uh, you, you change the perspective a little bit. Instead of shareholders, for example, you what you in fact have is a whole network of support. Yeah. Isn't it true that a lot of people would consider too many shareholders as, as problematic for their yeah. small young company? And I think that's so irritating for me. I, I hear that on a daily basis. And the thing is that for every year that has gone by since our launch, every year we demystify certain perceptions. People think certain stuff and then the year later they're like, oh, we were wrong. First thing they said, you are idiots. You're never going to launch this in Sweden because you don't have the right background. This tools. Then it's like, oh, you launched, but you're not good enough to build this into a company. And then we built a company and they said, oh, well, the market's not, not, not going to understand it. And the market did understand it. And then they said, this is illegal. And it wasn't. And then they said, you're going to be shut down. We weren't. Then they said it's not; it can't be big enough. It became big enough. Now, 2016 and 17, there's like, okay, how big can this be, and how should we do this into mainstream? So, one of like for us, our first years was about painting a picture of what this could be: cool, awesome, new. The next five years is to make it boring, <laughs> <laughs> to make it you know part of life. You know, you should just it's it's there, and once it's there, you can't turn back the time. So, so one thing that I notice when you talk is that, okay, so if you're looking for innovation and you really want to change something, you have to be patient because you've been doing this for a decade almost. Yeah, seven years and, now, yeah, yeah. from and, idea to yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, and now today people are asking you a question, how big can this be? Yeah. So what made you made you just stick to your idea and be true to it? What, what happened, what happened yeah. along the journey with yeah. you as yeah. a person? Yeah, very good question. So I think one of the first things is that you have to understand why you're doing something and if it has to matter. For some people, it matters if they're good painters or good artists or good repairmen, but you have to feel that you matter. Otherwise, you really should quit your job and do something else. So for me, I realized along the way that I'm really good at telling stories. I'm really good at seeing a vision and then executing on it also. I'm really good at making mistakes. And I think that's crucial. You have to dare to make mistakes a lot. And and, and also don't, not overthinking issues because right sometimes you just need to try something in a live environment. And to try something in a live environment, you need to make mistakes. I'm not afraid about pushing code, which is not 100% done because then we at least have data on how to improve the code because you can theorize about stuff up until point X, but after after that, you're just overthinking it. And we, we've seen previously when we launch something and nobody gets it. So that's why it's always better to just push something out, try that, recode, and de- develop, 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 develop. So my, me and my co-founder Arno, we are very, very good at thinking something and then launching it and then trying it. And, and 
also obviously trusting your gut feeling. A lot of people think gut feeling and instinct is something bad. But gut feeling and instinct is actually experience. It's your accumulated life experience and your networks and friends accum accumulated life experience, which, is, which, which means that if you don't trust your gut feeling and follow that, then you are not trusting your experience. So by that definition, if my gut feeling right now tells me that this should be changed, this should be added, that's because I'm hearing something, I'm learning something, and I should really execute on that. And I think a lot of people have really good instincts and have really good gut feelings, but they haven't learned to execute on that because they think it's you shouldn't be instinctively driven. Well, I think you you definitely have to be instinctively driven and then iterate if the data shows something else. That really reinforces a sort of truism in innovation, which which is that you should celebrate failure almost. I mean, to be successful, you have to have a safe place to go wrong all the time. Um, how, how does that fit into the crowdfunding model? Is it okay for companies to ask for funding and fail again and again and again? Or does, yes. that, is that a, does that make them less? As long, as long as they communicate, they can fail. The worst thing in uh, crowdfunding and any funding is when you, uh, you, know, you go into silent mode, when nobody knows what, what's happening. And, and, and it's hard. It's hard to communicate with 100 people and tell them that I failed. Just before I came into this podcast, I was interviewed by a journalist who said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, you raised money one and a half years ago and you promised a huge revenue and you failed. Why? I said, look, a bunch of stuff didn't go according to plan. I had to change my work. But nobody can, nobody can argue with me regarding my work ethics or how hard I'm working. But sometimes certain calculations doesn't go according to plan or certain contracts don't get signed or you change your mind based on data that you're having, which means that... People will tolerate failure or changes in plans as long as you communicate that it's happening and why it's happened. And that's also, you know, part of life. That's why you asked, you said about dating before. Yeah, we think Me is a dating site because we date people who want something with somebody else who wants something else. And if they match, then they're going to be happy. In life, in, in a good relationship, it's all about communication. When you don't communicate, that's when you start getting the problems and they become bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually you have to divorce because you stop communicating. While if you communicate early, then no problem can actually become monumental because if you communicate something, then you can actually start tweaking and fixing, uh, like in a relationship. Like for instance, let's say I'm working too much and my wife tells me now rather than two years from now, which means that I can I can take her to a on a trip or I can spend more time with her, but if she would tell me in two years now when she's fed up with me because I've worked too much for two years, then I can't fix it anymore. So this this is a both shareholder and love <laughs> advice. You it's get the same, double your but money it's the here. same. It's the same thing. I think I think life is about relationships. Whatever you do, you have relationships, uh, investments, company building, having a partner, having a wife, having a kid, having a friend. Everything is about relationships. We've spoken a great deal about the relationships on this podcast. In our previous episode, Professor Gray gave us a powerful insight into relationship between leaders and followers and the delicate management of trust. Are bad leaders actually better because they force people to step up? In our early episodes, we thought we'd be focusing on innovation but we ended up talking about the importance of being a dreamer and believing in your feelings and creating relationships. 
Now, in this episode, we're talking about finance, and it's all back to feelings and being involved 100%. I asked Daniel for his advice to someone who wants to build something and stay true to their feelings. One, one advice is to start with the why. I think the why is a crucial thing. Um, in any fundraising or any company building, you have the why, what, when, and who. But the why is crucial. And I think once you know your why, you can communicate your why to people who should use your app, your technology, or want to fundraise or if want to invest in you. And I think that's the hardest thing ever because for me, it took a lot of time to understand my why and especially the fundamentals of why. Why are we doing this? So, for instance, if you look at Fundamii, historically, we made some mistakes. And one of the biggest mistakes was that we tried to adapt to the financial markets. We tried to be as part of the financial market. And it was not going well. We didn't adapt. We didn't make them save money. We, people didn't understand us. We did recruit the wrong people. Uh, and then we understood our why. And actually, was based. Uh, I read this um, book about uh, the founder of Patagonia, Let My People Go Surf. It's very, very good. It's it's all, all about at point X going back to your roots and understand why you actually built your company. And they did this in, in a very crucial point. And for us, we understood that the why is because we have to improve and change the conditions for people like us. You know, we are extremely hardworking entrepreneurs, I would say even uh, interesting entrepreneurs. Uh, but on paper, paper, we're not stereotypes. And you have tens of thousands of people like us who need a tool like ours. So you asked me before about why I'm still doing this. And I think one is fear of failure. Because if I fail, then I fail the market. And I fail my clients. So I have the responsibility towards them to not fail. And, you know, having that whip is a huge <laughs> driver. You yourself, Daniel, you personally invest in quite a few of the companies yeah. uh, on funded by me. Um, what is it that you look for in a company when you're investing? Is it? I'm looking at hunger. If you're hungry enough, you're going to succeed. If you're not hungry enough, you're not going to succeed. And and what what are the indicators of hunger for you? Hunger is once again the why. Why are you doing this? Why are you launching this app? Um, um, is it like for instance one one thing that I would never invest in is when somebody says, "Well, I'm doing this uh, uh, consultancy job, and I'm taking a break for three months or six months to see if this can fly." I know for a fact that it's not going to fly in six months and they're going to go back to their cushy jobs, which pays highly. What I'm looking at is people who say, this is my only way. I'm, I'm doing this or else. Dedication. Dedication, yeah, and, 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 and passion. So hunger is, I think, the key driver to a lot of things. Look at Steve Jobs. You know, hunger for revenge was huge for him. You know, he wanted to come back and succeed after being kicked out. Um, hunger for disruption is crucial. If you look at... Uh, Tesla, no, uh, he wants hunger for changing the world in a way, but also is because he previously built a company who changed the world uh, in the finance scene. And I think, I think, historically, a lot of the drivers and what makes people like me tick and wake up on a bad day and go to work again the day after is the hunger to 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 to, to feel that you have changed something or improved something at least. We say that everything changes and it's really difficult to predict the future. I mean, you know, and the crowdfunding model increases that sort of rapidity of of uh, chaotic uh, patterning in a way. But let me ask you anyway, what, what do you think is the future of crowdfunding? How do you think it will change? Ten years ago, there was an, uh, uh, um, uh, on Forbes' first page on the cover, there was a picture of Nokia. 
multi-billion dollar company and everybody says, who can threaten this giant? This was 10 years ago. Nobody could even fathom the idea of threatening the big Nokia giant. 10 years later, the, everything has changed. So I think everybody who thinks that they know what's happening, they're wrong because true innovation comes and it's unknown. For crowdfunding, I think we're going to go a lot more mainstream. So it's going to be part of the ecosystem. You're going to see a lot more platforms. You're going to see a lot more successes and a lot more failures. But I think also what I know for a fact is that we are just going from the early adopters to the early majority. And I see the masses wake up. People you know, who never, ever in their life would have bought shares or invested suddenly make it as part of their everyday life. Of course, I'm investing in my local company. Of course, I'm investing in this app company. And I think actually crowdfunding is a really good recession tool because it's um, the pool of investors is so much bigger, which means that if recession comes, we will not be as affected. Uh, and uh, and I, actually, I think crowdfunding is a better tool in recession than in growth uh, markets. Another thing that's really uh, uh, important at the moment is the environmental impact caused by so much economic growth in industrial societies and so forth. Do you think the crowdfunding model has anything to say or any way of helping to develop, you know, ways of being that are more environmentally friendly? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So first of all, you're going to see more more environmental or social type of companies get funding, get successful funding, which they wouldn't gotten from the general industry who doesn't understand that. Obviously, having a digital tool means that you don't have to travel around the world to meet investors. So it's far more effective. You can actually cut down on on, on, on on costs that way. But I think at the end of the day is that if money goes to the right things, uh, eventually money will become almost like a vote. I'm voting that this company should, should succeed rather than this one instead. So companies who have a ethos would will get money faster. And we see that already. You talked about storytelling before. I think if a company tells what they want to do and they also have a financial driven sense so you think that this is a company which will take care of my money well but they also try to do something significant that company will get better funding than a company who wants to make money but doesn't care about being significant having said that i think that's a company who thinks about the environment at the same time that they're building something compared to a company who wants to build something but doesn't care about the environment i think the likelihood that the first company will get funding is higher will be higher when the massive, ma- when the masses get to vote, so we have a certain faith in the wisdom of the crowd. Then. Definitely, definitely. Well, on that, on that, uh, on that positive note, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming down. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really interesting. So there you go. Crowdfunding offers you the chance to support the next big thing, and influence companies you've invested in. It definitely alters gatekeeper positions and, if you have the funds, it offers an accessible way to shareholder status. Make sure you don't miss anything by subscribing at iTunes, SoundCloud or you can find us at our website amplifyinnovation.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Foster for Foster Media and Hannah Surfeld for Amplify Innovation.